Morning, church. Good to see you. It's a honor and, and humbling thing to open up the Bible and to preach God's word, not mine. And it's a very easy thing to preach your own word, but it's a very humbling thing to preach the word of God. And so um, I'm just thankful that God is going to preach a better sermon uh, than anything that, that I could do this morning. If you're joining us at one of our campuses, we're glad that you can be here. So whether we're here in the building or if we are uh, virtually together, what a blessing it is, amen, to be able to gather, to celebrate, to worship, and, and to really hopefully hear from the Lord today. We're finishing a four-week series called Heal Our Land, and, and what we've been doing in this series for the last four weeks is asking the question, what will it take, what would it take for there to be healing in our land? Specifically for us, we live in the Bay Area. What would it take to see healing to come into the Bay Area? You know, one of the things that is becoming more and more obvious, uh, something that's actually unifying people more than anything else, is everyone's agreeing that there's something wrong, right? As you look around, as you look at our society, our culture, our world, there's something wrong. In fact, there's many things wrong. There's war, there's oppression, there's injustice. Uh, it is getting harder and harder to take any politician seriously. Uh, you don't know if you see something on the news, you're like, is that true? What's the whole story? And, and no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on or wherever you're at, we all agree that something's wrong and that we're all wrong. And, but I would say that where the division comes is how are we going to make it right? How, how are we going to fix things in our society? And, and, and that's really the question that we're asking is uh, here in, at Resonate is how do we, not how do we fix things, but how do we bring healing? In fact, how can our church be a part of bringing healing into the land? And, and the way that we've been answering that question is we've been looking at, and jumping off of 2 Chronicles 7.14 for the last four weeks. And God says this in 2 Chronicles 7:14, "If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land." Now, to be sure, when God said this, he was not speaking to us. Do you know that? He was not speaking to us, Resonate Church specifically. This was actually a private conversation that he was having with Solomon after the dedication of the temple. So David wants to build a temple. God says, no, you're too violent. Your son's going to build it. Solomon, his son, then builds the temple, sacrifices thousands of animals in a display of, of glory to God. And then Solomon, as he's praying, God comes to him in a private moment and says, I will heal your land. And I will do so when you realize that you belong to me, you're my people, that you walk in humility, humble yourself, and when you begin to seek my face. And in fact, there's one last part of that verse that we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at the last part, which is when Solomon says, turning from your wicked ways. Now, that word turn... Uh, translated is a great biblical word, repent. Repent, right? That's not a word that we use in our culture uh, on a regular basis, right? You're not going to be at the office and someone is like stealing paper clips and you're like, Harold, Harold. I don't know the Harold's in the room. All of a sudden feel guilty, but just, you know what you, right? 
Harold, you need to repent of stealing office supplies, right? Like you wouldn't say that, right? You might not say anything at all, but you wouldn't use the word repent. Or you might say like, hey, friend, you are rooting for the wrong football team today. You need to repent of your bad choices in life. Like, you wouldn't say that, right? Because we just don't say that word. In fact, even as I'm saying it out loud, I see your faces. And I see many of you all of a sudden just go, oh, boy, here we go, big religious words. And, like, there's a shutdown uh, because this word, it might have connotations. It might bring back, um, like, bad memories of church experience or religious people in the past. But the problem, though, is that this is a very biblical word and a very biblical concept. In fact, John the Baptist, when he begins his ministry in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 3, the first words of his ministry are what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus, throughout his ministry, says to people, repent and believe. The apostles, all through the New Testament, call for repentance. And in fact, it's not just a New Testament thing. Uh, The Old Testament is replete with examples of God calling the people to repent of their sins. And so this is a a very biblical word, and what I want to show you today is that this is actually a regular part. It's an invitation, actually, to be a regular part of your Christian walk. The title of my sermon is A Tale of Two Guilts in which we're gonna look at two different examples of gross guilt and sin from the third and the fourth chapters of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter three. And if you're not not familiar with the story of Jonah, I'm gonna do 30 seconds here. In Jonah chapter one, God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and I want you to call out judgment against them. Their wickedness has come to me. I want you to call out against them. Basically like a calling them to justice. And Jonah says, absolutely not. Goes in the opposite direction. Jumps on a boat. Uh, sails away. And while he's sailing away, there's a storm. And the sailors are endangered. And so Jonah's like, this is because of me. Throw me overboard. And so it says that, uh, so they throw him overboard. It says that God commanded a fish or whale. Calm down. And It came at, some people get tripped on that, just stay with me, and the fish whale swallowed him whole, and it says that Jonah was down in the belly of the fish for three days, and then you get to chapter two, and Jonah delivers this beautiful prayer detailing God's salvation. It's an incredible prayer. I encourage you to read it sometime. We're not going to look at it today, but it's a beautiful prayer, and then it says at the end of the three days, God commanded the fish whale to vomit him up on the shore. And then we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3. And so I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read a small section of Jonah 3 and then an even smaller section in Jonah 4. This is Jonah 3 beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. 
from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now go over to Jonah chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And this is God's word for us today. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The pathway for us in order to take a deep dive into this topic of repentance is going to look like this. First, we're going to talk about what repentance isn't. Then we'll talk about what repentance is, what brings repentance, and what repentance brings. So we'll start with what repentance isn't. Jonah is a fascinating book in that when you, it's like like many stories that you begin to read, you, you start to read it. And you kind of figure out, okay, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And so you go into, with that mindset into the story of Jonah, and you start to see, you can, you can kind of figure out, okay, the Ninevites, clearly they're the bad guys, but Jonah does not look good at all. And, uh, and, and almost there's like this switching going on between the characters of, of like who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. But nevertheless, what we see in the story of Jonah is this incredible reality of sin, We'll take the easy one first. We'll look at the Ninevites. The Ninevites, uh, the, the, Nineveh was the capital, again, of the Assyrian Empire. If you're thinking world geography, think of uh, northern, what we think of, of northern Iraq today. So Nineveh is, the, is located in northern Iraq for us, but the Assyrian Empire. These were the most bloodthirsty, ruthless people uh, thought to live on the earth at that time. In fact, uh, an Assyrian king named Sennacherib, anytime he would have any kind of military victory, he would graffiti his own halls with uh, his exploits. And so he, would, he wrote this one time, Babylon's, when he, after he defeated in a, a battle against Babylon, Babylon's inhabitants, young and old, I did not spare. And with their corpses, I filled the streets of the city. Right? Like, he, this is not, these are not happy, friendly, sharing, like, you're not borrowing a lawnmower from Sennacherib or the Assyrians. You don't want to go over there. He even references, Sennacherib even references uh, the siege on Hezekiah, which you can read about in your Bible. And it's, he says, Hezekiah of Judah, who did not submit to my yoke, him I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a caged bird. Earthworks I threw up against him, and anyone coming out of the city gate I made pay for his crime. His cities which I plundered I had cut off from his land. Now this is the culture of Assyria. They are conquest, they are destroyed, they are take what they want. In fact, it's even believed by historians that it was the Assyrians who invented crucifixion for fun. So these are, these, you, you see right there the, the reality of sin just in the Ninevites. But, but what about our second bad guy here, Jonah? Jonah is the other culprit in this story. Jonah, when given a command from God, turns and, go, and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is over there, and I want you to speak out against them. And Jonah literally turns and goes in the opposite direction goes in the opposite direction to a city called Tarshish. 
So he's disobeyed to God. Anytime we disobey, listen, anytime we disobey a commandment from God, we have become the bad guys. You know that, right? Like, it's not a spectrum. It's when we disobey, we become the bad guys. Jonah, by his actions, he puts the, he endangers the lives of his fellow sailors. When he does show up in Assyria in Jonah chapter three, he, he gives the worst uh, evangelical salvation message of all time. He shows up and says, hey guys, in 40 days, you're gonna be destroyed. See ya. And that's it. That's it. In summary, what we see in, oh, and yeah, then in chapter four, he throws this little temper tantrum, right? What we see here about Jonah is that he's prideful, he's obstinate, he's unwilling, unwilling, not unable, unwilling to show any level of empathy and compassion. And again, anytime you or I do the same, we become the bad guys. We are the antagonist. And there's the, the reality of sin then brings with it this weight and power of guilt. Guilt, this sense, this feeling, this knowledge that what I've done, what I've committed, what I've said, what I've thought is wrong. It has gone against someone else. It has gone against God. And the power of guilt, the weight of guilt is a real thing that oftentimes manifests itself in a physical way. In fact, in Psalm 32, you don't need to read, you don't need to turn there, but David in Psalm 32 speaks of this, this, this weight, this, how his, his body is riddled, that he's having sleepless nights. Guilt can cause physical manifestations of nausea. It can make us forget how to speak to people. It can affect the way that we think and make decisions. Guilt also brings with it an obsession with itself. We become obsessed with our own guilt. Have you ever been in the place where you're trying to fall asleep at night and all of a sudden, right before you fall asleep, the tape starts playing of the things that you've done, the things that you've said, even things that you thought were not part of your life anymore and you can't turn off the tape? And it just keeps playing over and over, the secret things that nobody knows about. Guilt brings this kind of obsession. It brings an alienation from others, especially those from whom we've sinned against. And it brings an alienation from God. Until the result is this malaise and this belief that nothing will ever subside this feeling of guilt. And we are crushed by the weight of our guilt. Now in that moment, our, our minds, our hearts might turn to two options. And the first one we take, I think, from the culture that we live in today, which, is, which would say, you don't need to feel guilty. What are you doing, man? Listen, right and wrong, you decide what's good for you. Right? You do you. you there, morality is subjective. It depends on where you're at. Some things are right in this community, and some things are right and wrong in this community, and others are right and wrong in this community. 
And so we just kind of have to figure it out. And, and, and listen, if you're in that spot where you feel guilty over your sin, just justify it. Just figure out a way. Well, I needed this. I had to do this. I had no choice but to sin in this way. You know, guilt is from oppression. And the way that you throw off oppression is to stop feeling guilty. All of these ways. Now, side note, the problem with that, just from a philosophical point of view, is the society cannot exist if we don't all agree on right and wrong. You dig, right? Like that, it, it cannot work. Because if everybody is deciding for themselves what's right and what's wrong, we, we can't function that way. And we're seeing that, aren't we? We're seeing that in our society and in our culture. So, our, but our culture says, don't feel guilty. And religion says, you need to feel guilty. How dare you? What have you done? Uh, you cross the line that you can, you can never go back. Why, why didn't you just conform? Why, why couldn't you just be like your sister? Why, 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 don't we say that to our kids? Why, or we say things like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? What are you thinking? And we just pile it on more and more. See, when we're, when we're wrapped up in just the way of religion... Guilt becomes the motivating factor. And so we need to feel more guilty. If I feel more guilty over these things, then, well, then I'll, uh, maybe I'll feel better about it. And this leads me to, finally, what repentance isn't. Repentance is not merely feeling sorry for what you've done. I'm sorry that I've done that. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry there are consequences that we are now going to feel. I'm sorry that now people are going to perceive me as the bad guy. I'm sorry, fill in the blank. And there's many reasons why we might be sorry, but sorry is just kind of stops it, I regret that that happened, or I regret that I got caught. The other thing that repentance is not, it's not self-flagellation, which is like self-punishment. The picture that I, I have of this is Martin Luther, 16th century monk, 15th century monk, who, to show God his guilt, would have his fellow monks tie him to the roof of the church during rain, hail, windstorms. So he could feel the icy cold and the hail to show God, this is how, this is, I'm punishing myself for my sins. Look, look how sorry I am. Look how bad I feel about what I've done. Repentance is not doing good in order to make up for the bad. So I had a bad week, a bad day. I need to have a good week to cover it up. That's not repentance. Repentance is not focusing on self-love or self-care. You know, so what's going what's gonna to cheer me up? Well, I need to go buy something. That'll cheer me up. That'll take my mind off of the guilt that I feel. I need to go get some food. I need to hang out with people that are going to make me laugh. I need to watch a movie. I need to escape. And that's not repentance. And this last one might throw you for a little bit, but just stay with me. Repentance is not the need to forgive yourself. Because if you need to forgive yourself 
in order to absolve your guilt. That means you don't need the forgiveness of God. Do you catch that? Yeah. Or, I know, I know and I've heard this, and I'm not saying this to guilt you, I'm saying this to free you. I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. And do you know what the problem is with that? You have elevated the level of your own forgiveness for yourself than God's. And you see the problem with that. Because if your forgiveness of self or for other people matters more than God's, then you don't understand God's forgiveness. I'm sorry, you don't. And do you know why all of these have nothing to do with repentance? They're all rooted in self. They're not rooted in the person of God. They are rooted in self. They have nothing to do with God and it doesn't invite him into the process at all. So what is repentance? Finally, let's look at our text, Jonah 3. Repentance starts with believing God. Not believing in, believing God. Look at verse five. It says, the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed that their way was wrong and God's way was right. They believed that God's perspective on the world, on them themselves, was the correct perspective. They believed that God, God's understanding of all things was better than their own. Belief is the basis. It's the foundation of faith and trust. When we believe God, we are saying, I believe that your way, your perspective matters more and your holiness matters more. I believe you, God. Secondly, they mourn over their sin. Look at verse five again. It says, they, the Ninevites, called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, what's going on here? Okay, in, in the ancient world, not, you probably, you might have read this, you've heard Israelites do this in a time of, of mourning or grief. But this was actually a practice by many ancient peoples in the Eastern world back then. And what, what, what's going on is you would oftentimes, when uh, you were in a state of mourning or grief, you would put on a visible sign of that to express what was going on the inside. Think of it this way, how oftentimes we might wear black to a funeral. What are we doing? We're showing, there's, we're showing outwardly what, what is happening on the inside. And in the same way, the Ninevites, when they hear from, again, the worst salvation message in history, they, they, they mourn over their sin and they take action. They, they want to, a physical sign showing that they actually mourn over their sin. So they put on a sackcloth, think of like a big potato sack, and they sprinkle themselves with ashes. They sit in the ashes. This was a process but to show we are in mourning over our sin. And you say, that's kind of weird to mourn over your sin. Jesus himself in the New Testament, what does he say? In Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who what? Who mourn. And not blessed are those who mourn, who are sad, who had a bad day. It's blessed are those who mourn over the reality of their own heart. 
Blessed are those who mourn over the reality of their own sin. Think about this just for a moment. What's going on here is a complete revulsion of their own sin, a hatred, a disgust of their own sin. How would your life be different if you hated your sin just a tenth of what God did? It's just something to consider. Repentance is believing God. It's mourning over your sin. It's also connecting with God. Look at verse seven. And he issued a proclamation and published, this is the king, published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. What are they doing here? They're fasting, right? They're fasting. They're engaging in what we might call a spiritual practice, Right? Spiritual practices are, uh, are, are things that we do not to get good at. Things like prayer, fasting, reading the word, silence and solitude, Sabbath. There's a whole list of them. There's a whole grouping of them. We don't do those things in order to get good at them. The goal is not to get good at prayer or to do it more. Those things are a vehicle by which we commune and connect with God. In fact, I'll, I'll share this with you. Last week, uh, the discipleship team had, we went out to lunch and we were talking, well, discipleship, that's kind of our thing. And we, Pastor Scott asked around the question, great question, what's your dream for Resonate Church in 2024? And I, I, I didn't really have an answer in the moment. I wanted to, and I wanted to think about it. And I'll tell you what my dream is for us as a church. This is, this is Jason Wiggins' dream. My dream for us is that we connect and commune with God like we never have before. My dream for us is that we hear from the Lord, we experience the power of God in our life, we overcome sin, we find joy and peace like we never have before. And do you know how we do that? Do you know how we do that? Spiritual practices. That's how we connect with God. That's how we commune. That's how we experience the very presence of God. Repentance means actually reorienting your life to include spiritual practices, to, com- to include connection with God. But then he says in verse eight, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The the key here is turn, turn, turn from your evil way. I am going this way. I see, I I, I am consciously choosing to follow this path before me and and I'm mourning over my sin. I'm believing God. I am, uh, I'm engaging, I'm connecting with God and now I see my sin for what it really is and how dark and how it's destroying me and so now I will turn towards something better which is actually God himself which is actually the presence of God himself. I'm turning away from one thing and turning to the other. The act of turning, it it involves these first three, and and, and, I mean, that's that's where we get the word repent. To repent is to, to literally turn from one to the other. And then finally, I love this. 
Put yourself in the hands of God. Verse 9, look at this. Listen to the humility here and the trust. The king of Nineveh says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Do you know what the king is saying? We deserve everything. We deserve punishment for our sin, for our bloodthirstiness, for our conquest, for our pride, for our fill-in-the-blank. We deserve it. But we're going to repent of those things and place ourselves into the hands of God and trust him. We're going to trust in him. The act and posture of repentance is to completely put yourself at the mercy of God. The Bible teaches us that when we sin, it is against God that we have sinned and broken covenant first. And so it is quite fitting that we first go to him when we have sinned. And what is the result? Look at verse 10. When God saw that what, they had, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God, what? Relented. The word there is actually turned. Turned of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. You and I... Don't fool yourself. You and I are in no better place than the Ninevites. If you think to yourself, because I've never conquested the city next to me, I'm not inventing torture methods, I'm a good person, friend, you are the bad guy. I am the bad guy. And repentance is recognizing that I, I am lost unless I turn to the Lord in repentance. So the question then is, what leads us to this repentance? What brings us to this repentance? And the answer is found in Jonah's temper tantrum in, verse, in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, the opposite direction. For I knew, Jonah knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The narrator of the story, which I believe is Jonah, I'll explain that in a little bit, but the narrator lets us in on a conversation that happened between God and Jonah that's not in the text. That I think that God came to Jonah and said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and call out against it. And Jonah was like, no, I'm not doing that. I know what's going to happen. The people in in Jonah's eyes, the least likely people who deserve anything from you, God, you're going to give it to them because you're gracious, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, and you're bounding in steadfast love. And yet, those are the four, those, those are four beautiful reasons, four beautiful things that bring us to repentance, that God is gracious. Do you know what that means? That means that God gives good things to people who don't deserve it. Do you know who that is? Everybody. That's God's nature. He's merciful. God is merciful. That means that he withholds punishment and judgment 
on people who deserve it. That he actually withholds his hand. The fact that you and I are still breathing is evidence of his mercy on us because we've sinned against him. He's slow to anger. This is, this is said throughout the Old Testament, that he is slow to anger, which is often not how we picture God, but he's slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. Will you just, if you do this, maybe underline steadfast love in your Bible, or at least remember that phrase, steadfast love. We'll come back to it in just a moment, but these are the things that bring us to repentance. Listen, fear is a horrible motivator to repentance. Guilt is a horrible motivator to repentance. Even future blessings are a horrible motivator. Do you wanna know why? Because they're still all based in self. I'm afraid, I don't wanna get in trouble. I've done wrong again. Oh no, I'm such a horrible person. If I repent, God will, be, God will give me good things. Biblical re repentance is rooted in the person and character of God. And you know what the foundation of that is? His kindness. Romans 2, 4 says this, that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Now think about that just for a moment. You've sinned before God. There's now separation between you and him. There's a fracture in the relationship. And you feel it. And, 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 and what, what do you think is going to motivate you to come back to him in repentance? Is it guilt? Is it fear of punishment? Or is it the road of kindness? Is it the knowledge that, that he is kind? And this kindness, listen, his kindness is what makes repentance safe. His kindness is what makes repentance safe. Because you go to him and you follow that path of, uh, of kindness. And the Lord looks to, and you repent of your sin. God, my way is so sinful. My way was wrong. It is only against you that I have sinned. And I turn from my sin to you. Not to, not to righteousness, but to you, God. I turn to you because you are what's good. You are what's right. And the father says, son, daughter, I forgive you. You knew not what you did. I love you. I've adopted you. Your sins are forgiven and atoned for. What has, what has completely alienated you from me, I have brought you back in. Now, let's go to that, that word, that phrase again, steadfast love. That word steadfast love is an English translation for a Hebrew word, and we don't really have a good English word for it. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And, and this word pops up throughout the Old Testament. And if you don't know this word, you need to know this word. Hesed is the Hebrew word that described the covenant language, or excuse me, the covenant love that God has had, has, had with Israel. And, and this was the kind of love, this covenant love, in which God said, even though I'm going to love you, and even though you're going to sin, you're going to break this covenant, you're going to break the promise, you're going to wander off, you're going to, uh, to curse me and, and walk away as fast as you can to go in the opposite direction, I will continue to love you. I will be the constant. I will uphold the covenant. I will uphold the love for you because that's who I am, says God to us. 
And this has said love is expressed in no greater way through Jesus Christ. Because like Jonah, Jesus was called by the Father to go to men and women and call them to repentance. And like Jonah, Jesus went down into the depths for three days and was brought back into the land of the living. And like Jonah, Jesus' words were effective for many to come to repentance then and to today. But unlike Jonah, unlike Jonah, Jesus rejoices at the turning of hearts. Jesus rejoices when a sinner repents. Do you know that story, the, the, the three stories in Luke chapter 15, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son? Do you know those stories? As a woman who loses a coin, Jesus is telling parables. And the woman loses a coin and she finds it and she calls all of her friends together and like, we're celebrating, I found the coin. And then there's a guy who loses a sheep and he goes and searches for it, leaves the 99, finds the one, brings it back, calls his friends together. We're celebrating, I found my sheep. And then there's the father who has a son who's lost, who goes away, who sins, who completely destroys his life. And rejects everything from the father. And then he comes back and repents. Then the father calls his friends together. And what does he do? They have a party. They rejoice. And what does Jesus say after each story? There's rejoicing in the presence of angels when one sinner repents. And I tell you, it's not the angels rejoicing. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that the angels look at salvation and they look at the gospel and they're like, we don't get it. Oh, we don't understand. We long to look into these things. We long to understand it. And God is just up there. Yes, there's repentance. A son has come back. A daughter has come back. They've left this way and they've come back to me. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to celebrate. That is our heavenly father. That is why you are safe to repent to God in heaven. Repentance isn't an event Repentance, ready? It's a lifestyle. Tim Keller says this, all of life is repentance. Repentance is the way that we make progress in the Christian life. Repentance is the secret. It is the way to experience God's presence in everything. Because in the act of repentance, you are putting yourself into the hands of an almighty, loving God and say, change me, mold me, transform me, make me into who you want me to be. Show me where I am in air, where I am lost, where the dark places are in my heart. And God says, I will. And he leads you to those light places. He leads you into becoming a new person. God's holiness warrants our repentance. But his love, his love welcomes our repentance and his kindness woos us into repentance. The great tragedy of the story of Jonah, just as it's written in the four chapters, is at the end of of Jonah, Jonah has his temper tantrum and he doesn't come out of it. The story just ends abruptly. And personally, I believe that Jonah is the author of the story. I'll tell you why in just a moment. 
Let me ask you a question. Church, what do you need to repent of today? What secret sin lingers in your heart? What public sin are you justifying before others? Because if repentance is a pathway to communion and closeness with God, why wouldn't we follow on that path? What can repentance bring? We'll close with this. Go back to 2 Chronicles 7.14. And again, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal, hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We are the people of God. We are to walk in humility. We are to seek the face of God and live a life of repentance before him. Now how are these things going to bring healing in the land? Remember, Solomon has just built the temple. And the temple was the place of God's presence where he was going to, where his presence, his glory, his righteousness was gonna go out from the temple into the land. And, and the temple and the people were to be conduits of God's glory from the temple out into the land. Well, here we are 3,000 years later, and there is no temple. You can go to Israel. The temple is no longer there. Except there is a new temple. Do you want to know where it is? This is the temple. Jesus says that now God resides, his presence resides in each of us. And so what that means is we become, as individuals and the gathered body, we become the presence of God where his glory and his work and his righteousness and his love flow out, meaning that to bring healing into the land, God wants to use us. God wants to use us and the work that he's doing in our hearts and in our lives, in our minds, in how, in how we do everything. And the work that God's doing in us, he wants to do in the world around us. That will bring healing into the land. When you and I say yes to the way of God through Jesus Christ. When we allow him and, 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 and invite him and ask him to transform us that, and then go from there into our jobs, into our schools, our neighborhoods, we're like a little mobile tem temple moving around and God working through us in other people. Pastor Roberto was talking about revival. Do you know where revival starts? Revival starts with repentance. Revival starts with the people of God being real about their sin, being truthful and honest and realistic 
about their need for God, saying yes to him, repenting before him, living a life of repentance. And as God does the work in us, then he does the work in the world. Would you pray, for me? pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the reality of your grace and your mercy and you being slow to anger and your steadfast love for us and how it is your kindness that is our pathway to repentance. Not the threat of punishment, not our overwhelming guilt, not the promise of blessing, but your kindness, actually who you are, your very character. And I pray for my friends in the room, I pray this for myself as well, that as we come to grips with and are honest with the reality of sin in our lives, that God, we would see your kindness as the safe place for us to bring it to you in order that we might repent and that you would heal us first so that you could use us to heal the land. Oh God, I pray that we would experience you in that way more than we ever have before. And I thank you that all of this is possible because Jesus answered the call, went down into the depths, came back, and now celebrates over our repentance. We love you, God. Thank you for all these things. In his name we pray, amen. Let's praise God for this reality that we have.